Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. My rock and roll party wasn't the party I had imagined or hoped for. You know, it was full of regret and it was full of uh, sickness and it was full of uh, a disappointment and hurting people I loved. But still, I had this hope that that would all turn around. My guest today is named Joe C. He is from Ontario, Canada. He is a writer, broadcaster, podcaster, and journalist, and he has been sober since the 70s. Welcome to the show, Joe. This is a better era for recovery than I have ever seen in how many decades? The 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the zeros the 10s, the 20s. So uh, I've participated in six different decades in recovery, and there's never been a better time than now. Uh, Like you can go to uh, a refuge recovery meeting and you don't like that. You don't understand the words. And then you try an AA meeting and you don't like that one. You try another AA meeting, you like that one. You go to NA, you go to... uh, Life ring, you know, you have, you know, group therapy on Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are so many things you can do that are either, uh, you know, sort of professionally led or quasi professionally led, like uh, recovery coaches or whatever, or just pure peer to peer stuff. Like you will find stuff you don't like. That's the whole idea, right? You know, mix mm. it up a little bit. But it is. It, you know, people were talking about how hard it is to get sober during the pandemic. I think the Zoom era, uh, I'm, I'm just curious. I, I want to see how many more people there are in our community, you know, by 2025 and uh, hear their stories. Because yeah, I think by 2025, half of the recovery community will not have been to a face-to-face meeting. Mm. Yeah, I would be curious to know that as well. I've actually interviewed a couple of people that found recovery in the middle of the pandemic and have yet to go to an in-person meeting. And then I, I've also heard the the other side of it where it's people that have been going to in-person meetings for a long time and that's what they're used to, that's what they're accustomed to. And then they're like, I don't like this format. I like to be in person. I like the hugs and the handshakes and I like being in the room with the people. So I've heard both, both sides, but I... I agree. I think there's going to be a lot more people than we expect that found recovery during the pandemic. The answer is say yes to everything. Exactly. Like I I was at my first 
Toronto in-person meeting, uh, we agnostics group, uh, like there was eight of us there, right? In a meeting that used to have 25 or so, uh, like it's slow, you know, getting back to the in-person thing. Uh, I was the only one masked. Everyone else was treating the world as in a post-pandemic stage. Uh, I wasn't uh, shamed for wearing a mask, but 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 I was like I was noticeably, you know, attentive to you know other people's sort of social distancing or lack thereof, and uh, but I a hundred percent get why those people need that meeting in that way. And they might not be getting what they require from Zoom. Let's face it, some people work 10 hours a day on their computer. And self-care isn't spending another hour and a half at a 12-step meeting on Zoom. Like, just please, I need something else other than, you know, these faces looking back at me on the screen. <laughs> yeah. But I love it. I, I, I haven't got tired of going to meetings in... Uh, Hong Kong and Iceland and South Africa yet. <laughs> yeah, that is one cool part is how it's brought the community together and you can attend meetings all around the world from your home. And I think yeah. that is such a unique experience. And I agree with you. I think whatever works, I don't see any harm in it. So I think that they will continue to have virtual meetings and I think there's benefits to both, honestly. You know, I, I I benefit from seeing people at my home group and having people that know what's going on in my life, but I can also benefit from when my life is crazy and hectic and my wife needs a break and the baby's throwing yeah. a fit and this and that. I can still hop on my phone or computer and catch a meeting and still be able to, you know, do my fatherly duties and help out around the house and stuff, but still get some recovery. And so I see the benefits and and I can I can also see where you're coming from if if you do work from home and maybe you're burned out from being in front of that screen all day. I mean I I don't work from home, so when I get home at the end of the day after like a ten hour day, I'm like I don't want to leave my house. Like yeah, I, fi yeah. I finally made it home. I don't want to leave. <laughs> I again, it's just so wonderful. Some people can treat a meeting like a radio show and just turn their mic and their camera off and go about cooking their food or tending to their kids or their elderly uh, loved ones or whatever else they got to do, go shopping, right? Uh, and um, you couldn't do that in 1955. <laughs> mm. You know, things, uh, things are, are better than they were in a big way yeah yeah so joe i would love to to talk a little bit more about it because you kind of teased it before we started recording and and you mentioned that you've been in recovery for six decades now so i would love to hear what it's been like what the different decades have been like your experiences you know what how you see the recovery culture shifting i just want to hear more about it because i I've only been in recovery for, I'm coming up on eight years, so I don't know a whole lot about the history, and, and I know a little bit about some, some of our predecessors and stuff just from doing some research and reading some books, but I haven't lived that, and I'd love to hear more about it. Sure. Uh, I've done a, a lot of uh, research about, mostly about AA, but I also have a real interest in underrepresented populations 
why aren't there more visible minorities in AA? What about atheists and agnostics in 12-step recovery, for instance? Um, you know, socioeconomic barriers, that sort of thing. So, uh, so I've done some uh, research in GSO, and it's it, it, it it's like I'm like a kid in a candy store there. When I was a teenager in early recovery, um, of course, when I came to AA, I wasn't planning on staying in AA. I was getting the heat off. I was helping. Uh, the first time I was just, just shut up. All right, already. I'll go to a goddamn meeting if you'll just <laughs> stop with those 20 questions. Okay. Like uh, enough. Yeah. And uh, so I went with a bad attitude and I compared and I got what I needed. Right. I don't belong here. I'm glad these people have each other. And uh, uh, it, it, it seemed to me that sobriety was a punishment for admitting I was an alcoholic. It just didn't se seem attractive at all. It just seemed like a provisional life, right? Like uh, never being allowed to leave your house, right? Or, uh, you know, uh, going to the uh, a resort and never swimming in the ocean. Like it, it just like it, it, it was unattractive to me. And um, and that's curious because my life wasn't working out well. My rock and roll party wasn't the party I had imagined or hoped for. You know, it was full of regret and it was full of uh, sickness and it was full of uh, a disappointment and hurting people I loved. And uh, but still, I had this hope that that would all turn around. You know, that's, uh, uh, you know, denial isn't a river, a river in Egypt. <laughs> you know? And uh, and so. I wasn't attracted to AA at all. I come from a notorious family of two-steppers. Uh, so if you shake any family tree, one or two drunks fall out of your family tree, right? And, and I'm not the first alcoholic to don my family tartan. And um, so I, I knew of AA. I knew about AA. And, uh, you know, my uh, I was living with my father at the time, but my Mother was married to someone she was trying to sober up, and then she joined AA. And, you know, I'd go over there, and there'd be a bunch of people in the living room, you know, drinking coffee, and someone would say, live and let live, and everyone would go, ha, 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 ha. And, you know, like, so I, I got the gist of it. I went to the odd, like, one-day roundup, right, just, you know, for the food. And, like, like back in the day, right, you brought your kids to – AA stuff, right? Like, what are you going to do? You don't have a babysitter, right? So we'd go and, you know, we wouldn't sit around and listen in the meetings, but, you know, kids always find a way to have fun. But it wasn't until I was asked to bring my cousin to a meeting that I, I committed myself to staying sober, not because I thought I was an alcoholic and I was at the, uh, my wit's end, but because she was, she needed the help. I wanted to help her. Um, I, I think loosely my plan was to get my cousin sober, sneak out the back door and die a tragic alcoholic death because that still sounded more romantic than living sober. Oh, please. New Year's Eve, sober. Wow, that's got to be fun. 
Oh, you can remember everything the next day. Fantastic. Like I was just sarcastic about it. Like it was like, it's just, you're kidding yourself, right? You know, your, your life is over you sober people. Right. But now it was, it was uh, what they call modeling pro-social behavior. I was trying to show my cousin, right. We'll join this group. We'll get active in this group, right? Uh, let's go to this young people's conference. Let you know, I was, I was staying sober to be an example, uh, and and that's kind of how I got sober. Uh, you know, my mother was sober like three months the first time she confronted me with the twenty questions. I'd only ever been to the Lakeshore General Hospital three times. Uh, the first time I was found uh, face up in my own vomit by the Zamboni driver at the high school ice arena uh, on a Saturday morning. He thought I was dead. Yeah, I was just lying there in the uh, boys' changing room, right? And he phoned the ambulance, and, and they pumped my stomach, and I lived, right? Uh, like I was completely blacked out. I can't tell you how I get there. The last thing I remember is I was about to go to a dance, but I fell down, and my friends were tying my shoelaces to the bicycle rack, like you would a horse or a dog or something, right? Just don't worry about Joe, he'll be fine. Let's go inside and have some fun. <laughs> and uh, that's, and the hours in between, I've no idea. Apparently I did cocaine for the first time in my life outside of my price range usually. And uh, how I got it, who I did it with, what I did to get it, I have no idea. But that was in my uh, toxology report when, uh, they uh, pumped my stomach in the morning. And and that morning, I was a, an asshole to the guy who saved my life. He just seemed like an idiot who was interfering with... Uh, I had bigger things, bigger fish to fry uh, than listening to his toxology report. I had no memory of what happened. And it's not like it is today. I couldn't check my mobile phone and see the last picture on Instagram or the last text I sent to whoever, like I had no idea of assessing the damage until I walked into school the next Monday, right? Like, was I a hero? Was I a goat? Was I, uh, did, should I be ashamed of myself? Or, you know, I have no idea. Like I just had this sense of impending doom. That's way more important to a teenager than if you keep drinking this way, you could have consequences sometime in the future. Please, that, that didn't, didn't bother me. Uh, so that, that didn't get me sober. Uh, I was, uh, unappreciative of the guy who my mom asked to take me to a meeting nice guy you know we smoked in his car on the way to the meeting it, like i didn't identify everyone was so old some of them were 30 35 years old you know and here i was 14 at my first meeting and um the next time i was in the hospital i uh was uh, beat up by a couple of bikers and they were explaining to me in broken English, these uh, uh, French Canadian Hells Angels, how, um, you know, there were no freelance hashish sellers in this neighborhood, right? That this is, they, they sold drugs here. Like I wasn't going to make my, you know, just because I couldn't make it on my paper route, I wasn't going to be able to make a living selling drugs either. They, they beat me up. I had to get my nose reconstructed and some other 
uh, injuries. And then the third time I, my girlfriend left me and to show her how romantic I was, I thought I would kill myself. And uh, here I was again, back at the emergency uh, department of this same hospital, third time, third Saturday at like three or four o'clock, no, five o'clock in the morning. And, uh, you know, the third time I'm just, I'm coming down from the drugs and alcohol uh, you know, I I just feel humiliated, right? Like, you know, I failed at suicide. You know, I've my wrists are getting bandaged up. I'm going to have to wear long sleeve shirts for the rest of summer. Like, what? Well, you know, this is. I just wanted a do over, just because I felt like I never wanted to face anybody. I would have rather died than sort of, you know, have to explain what I did and why I did it. But none of these things made me think. I've got to stop this behavior and a life of sobriety would be rewarding. It wasn't until I was uh, trying to sort of sell it to my cousin, uh, you know, it, with all the sincerity in the world, right? It, I wasn't selling Amway. I, 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 I saw in her a life worth saving, something I didn't see in myself. Uh, I didn't think I had the integrity to stay sober. I didn't think there was much to a life of sobriety. You know, let's uh, go down in a ball of flames like my heroes did. And, and, and that's what I was planning for myself. But in this, you know, sort of taking her to meetings, getting hooked up with a sort of uh, running mates, you know, my recovery colleagues, people we would stay up until sunrise drinking tea or coffee and talking, either talking shit about our uh, false claims about our sex lives or um, you know, uh, music or about the meeting, right? You know, sort of taking the inventory of the speaker we listened to, uh, you know, hours before. But but I was creating a community, and and that community, um, I'm going to jump all over the place. But but like we were talking about, how the great thing about recovery now is is everyone should broaden their sort of exposure to recovery communities. If you've only been to 12-step, uh, try a, a life ring or a smart recovery or, you know, a Dharma recovery or something, you, you know, and do what you would tell someone else to do. Don't judge it on one meeting. Go to a dozen meetings. And, and after you've gone to a dozen meetings, go to the two you like the best in case there was a false positive. See, see if you can connect with it right but uh we didn't have that then of course there was like a 12 step or nothing uh, but but i i got hooked into it and i see that in all of these things some of these fellowships we have now have steps and some of them have eightfold paths and some of them have positive affirmations and some of them have uh cognitive behavioral therapy toolkits of you know you know uh dealing with triggers and coping mechanisms and yada, yada, yada. And everyone's getting sober in all of these places. I, I, I'm not 100% sure which, which is uh, the leader of the pack. Uh, you know, the early indication from the people who study us uh, is that uh, in a study of AA versus uh, She Recovers, uh, Life Ring and Smart Recovery, None of them were better than AA. I mean, they were all invented after AA, but but um, they weren't any worse than AA either, right? Like they were all 
uh, showing some effectiveness. So, so I, I thought, well, what is the secret sauce then? You know, like I hear people say, uh, uh, going to meetings is what keeps me sober. I hear people say it's the steps. I couldn't find sobriety until I worked the steps. I find people say service. I've got to be, you know, I've got a short memory. I've got to be helping others, getting out of my own head, putting on meetings, uh, helping others with their recovery. And and everybody's best practices, I've heard someone else say that didn't work for them. They drank again. That let them down. So So there's no one way there's no the way there's no the there uh so what is it and and this is something i completely ripped off from uh, uh again one of these scientists who studies we alcoholics his name is david best if anyone's interested he wrote a book called uh um uh i'll get it for you for the show notes here it is pathways to uh recovery and desistance the role of the social contagion of hope and hope is part of a, a paradigm called chime, which is uh, connection, hope, identity, meaning, and empowerment. And he studied people who got sober through the church, people who got sober on their own, people who got sober in 12-step meetings, people who got sober in non-12-step meetings. He had no horse in the race for how they were getting sober. And he was looking for the commonalities the sort of uh, predictive indicators that someone has a better chance of getting from one year sober to five years sober and from five years sober to never drinking again. And this chime thing is the thing that he found across all of these things. We heard about connection, right? Big TED talk, right? Uh, the opposite of uh, addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. Ah, everyone cheers, right? But that's kind of simplistic in that I find I'll have connection at the crack house or my local bar, right? Everyone knows my name, right? That's connection. But those are, are, are negative influences. That isn't like people who uh, sort of model pro-social behavior. So it has to be the right kind of connection. But that's essential. And then that hope ingredient, which is in the title of his book, hope isn't something we create ourselves or we bring to recovery. We catch it off of each other. I had no hope. I described myself as when I was honest with myself, I didn't think I had enough integrity to stay sober and I didn't think I was worth it. But everybody else was saying, Joe, if we can do it, you can do it. Don't be so hard on yourself. What are you doing tomorrow? Nothing. Okay, let's go to a meeting. I'll pick you up. Okay, uh, we'll go to a meeting tomorrow. So I was developing this one day at a time thing. I was catching hope off of them like you would catch COVID, right? You know, it just, you got to be exposed to people and then you get it. And, uh, and then from there, uh, you know, you can tell my identity as, as someone in recovery uh, isn't what I how I identified sober living as a, a punishment. I, I don't see it as a punishment. I don't see it as a handicap. I have uh, post-traumatic gains in my life, right? I don't regret what I've uh, gone through. And uh, so I have an identity as someone in recovery. There's a lot more to me than than just being a sober person, uh, but um, but I have a sense of identity and and meaning. 
I, I always tell people you've got to have something you'd rather do than be at a recovery meeting, right? You know, whatever it is, whether it's softball or playing music or you love your job or you love your family or uh, you uh, uh, volunteer in the community, there's got to be eventually something like that recovery is only a vehicle so that you can do these things where you can get this sort of positive reinforcement again creates more community more hope more sense of identity and meaning right you get the meaning from that so so the the meaning is important and when you have that everybody's empowered whether they work steps or follow the eightfold path or um uh found a higher power or uh, found a higher purpose. Any of those things uh, will will work and sustain long-term recovery. It's reductionist to think one way is better than the other. We just don't know that. Everything we do know from people who do these longitudinal um, uh, randomized trials suggests to us that recovery does work. It's It's not you know, like our communities are better than what they call spontaneous recovery, people who just get sober on their own. Plenty of people do, but you will see in those people, they already have a great community. They've got a supportive family that supports their recovery as opposed to a bunch of drug fiend friends that can't wait to get high with them again. Oh, you've been sober for a month. You got any money? Let's go party, right? (laughs) And uh, so they've got a community. They've got a sense of identity. They've got sort of the basic socioeconomic needs, their, their foundation for finding recovery. And they're motivated, right? They're professionals and they want to keep their job as a doctor or as a lawyer or, uh, you know, as a, a politician or wh- whatever it is that they do, even as a musician, right? You know, there's plenty of sober rock stars. And uh, so they've got something that motivates them to stay sober. So they've got all that chime stuff, even though they might not go to meetings or practice the 12 steps exactly as written in the, you know, NA book or the Marijuana Anonymous book or the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever your favorite pathway is. But you'll see that in them. You you see that they're connected. Uh, they have hope, they have a sense of identity. Even hope is being uh, sort of scientifically uh, pinned down. It's not just a spiritual thing that we don't know the answer to. You have to have a goal with hope. You have to have a a pathway that you can see that, hey, this could work. Uh, Someone else followed this path that worked for them, that can work for me. And um, then agency, you know, like, uh, how am I going to do this? Like, like, how am I going to get it? How am I going to keep it? And that agency can be your group of drunks if it's your recovery community. It can be uh, for those who believe in a sobriety granting, uh, prayer answering type of higher power. That belief in that sort of agency will help or or whatever your, your sort of uh, intrinsic, whether it's a deep down uh, value system inside or whether it's uh, uh, more organized in terms of a sort of religious construct, 
Uh, that's your agency, right? So, so hope can actually, the scientists have actually broken it down into what its component par parts are. It's not a magical, lucky, uh, you know, uh, mysterious thing that we don't understand anymore. That was probably true in 1939, but it's certainly not true in 2022 mm -hmm. by any stretch of imagination. So, so my, my cousin and I went to a bunch of meetings and then I found myself in sobriety, right? Uh, I, some of the things like, let's just talk, like, I love the fact that I can go to all these meetings now and I've enjoyed uh, refuge recovery, Dharma recovery. I've enjoyed uh, smart meetings and life ring meetings and NA meetings and AA meetings and adult children of alcoholic meetings and uh, Al-Anon and Coda, like uh, uh, Sex and Law of Addicts Anonymous. I, I've I, I found uh, that my addiction life didn't end with stopping drinking. Uh, and in some cases, it was just a matter of, you know, uh, taking inventory and rearranging my behaviors and like getting in shape is. And in other cases, I needed a whole new community of people who felt like me, suffered like I did, and uh and showed me a way out so uh so i'm uh by addictive <laughs> like i've got i've got a whole spectrum of addiction issues that i've dealt with since the 70s so maybe my last drink uh was uh, 1976 but my struggle with addiction uh it, it you know, it's never been three trips to the hospital, but, you know, I've had some emotional bottoms that were as bad as anything uh, from some of my other sort of process addiction-y type things. So I've had, so it hasn't been all uh, unicorns and lollipops in recovery by any stretch of the imagination. But those were the people I really admired in my early recovery, not the people who had the new car and the good job and had the the world by the tail they were the people who were struggling through relationship problems uh financial crises health problems and there was nothing in their life that a drink would have made better in fact that a drink wouldn't have made worse right so i go wow i'll have what they're having right that 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 really impressed me those are the people i sort of sought out and uh because we are uh a community of common suffering. Our recovery pathways are multiple, and even our, you know, addiction stories are very varied. But you know, like people talk about chronic uniqueness. Hello, yes, everybody's story is completely different. Like if you really, you know, uh, take a microscope to it than everybody else's. Everybody's recovery pathway is completely different. When I hear someone say, I did the steps exactly the way my sponsor did the steps, which was the way their sponsor did, you know, I understand what they're saying. They followed the guidance of others and trusted them implicitly. But everybody makes little adjustments as they go along, right? I don't, I think we're like snowflakes. Uh, and again, that's a a view and an opinion that, that isn't uh i'm not treating it as a fact and i'm not treating the people who say exactly this way as liars or fundamentalists i'm just saying um we hold on to a view of how uh, we did things uh but um 
you know, it's it, it is different strokes for different folks. And uh, there, you can almost take out any of the components and, and you still have a car that runs, you know, because, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I've seen people who started the steps but never finished them and they live a, a life they're enjoying. Who, who am I to judge, right? They're, they're enjoying their life. I'm glad they're sober. Uh, and um, other people who, you know, you know, strict, really crave structure. And it, the chaos of drinking and drugs uh, or whatever their addiction was, was so great that they crave structure. They want to be led. They want to uh, they 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 want to be free from uncertainty. And so that that you can find that. But the the risk in that is rigidity. If I get like that, I get rigid and then I start um uh, talking shit about somebody else's path because it's not the same as this one. And uh, and I've gotten too rigid. And in a perfect equilibrium for me in my recovery, I have structure in my life. Yes, that's important. But I try not to get rigid. I have spontaneity in my life, and that's absolutely important. But I try not to let it get chaotic, right? Because uh, the, you know, uh, rigidity uh, will lead to me being fascist about how things have to be and how things ought not to be. And the if I go from spontaneity to chaos to um, uh, nihilism, then what's the point? We're all going to die. The world's going to be hit by a meteorite. What's the point? <laughs> you, know, that's, you know, lost my way, right? It's, it's not one or the other. It's it's uh, having uh, like that that uh, yin and yang sort of image, you know. Like I don't pretend to be a Buddhist, but I've read some of the stuff uh, that that it's a interdependent balance for me to be spontaneous and have structure in my life. And I, anytime I'm leaning on one side of the teeter totter, you know, uh, I'm isn't as good as when I'm in that sort of teetering balancing in the middle kind of way right that's just better for me way better for me don't know about you we'll have to talk about your dirt another time <laughs> yeah yeah definitely and, and and we're kind of getting towards the end of our time so i would love to if you wouldn't mind talking about your book your podcast what are some of the things you're working on uh if there's somebody that's listening that's relating to what you're sharing, is there a way they can contact you? Just let us know some of the some of the things that you're working on. Sure. So I got bored with AA. And and I it, because it changed. Um it became in the place that I was and the meetings I was going to, it became uh, more rigid, more fundamentalist, uh, more book oriented. Uh, and it wasn't the uh, joie de vivre, je ne sais quoi of the Montreal AA uh, that I got sober in here in Toronto. And I, I really found like I hadn't read the big book until I was sober over 11 years. Like, uh, I just, I wasn't a reader, right? Like, it was one alcoholic talking to another, right? And and I was sitting in meetings and, and having people describing an AA I, I didn't belong. And I, I didn't work the steps exactly as directed, uh, you know, 
like I, I work them willy nilly, right? Like I've done them all. Yeah. But, you know, I tried step nine first to get back in with my old girlfriends. That didn't work. It wasn't a very effective way to sort of, you know, make amends, right? Because, and uh, so, so they are in an order for a reason, but life doesn't happen uh, in order for a reason. So sometimes uh, I've got to do step 12 before I understand step one, because I did. So I couldn't listen to these people describing AA and say, yeah, that's my story. I, I just, I was hearing a story. You've got to, uh, you, you can't give it away until you have it. Well, I was giving it away and that's how I got it, right? So I just, I started first fighting and then saying nothing and then wondering if I was going to go. And I found this um, Yahoo group. It was called AA Free Thinkers. And it also, um, I was, I was, I never believed in a supernatural higher power, but no one ever challenged me on that in early recovery. Um, you know, it, it just never came up and I was never confronted. No one ever said, well, if you don't believe in this type of worldview, you know, you're not a real alcoholic or, you know, you're never going to find sobriety or I wouldn't want what you have or some of the mean spirited stuff I heard being said, you know, between members and, and newcomers. And I thought, I don't know, I'm tired. And I found this free thinkers and it, and it was back to that, this Yahoo group was that sort of fun, right? That sort of experimental, that beginner's mind, that sort of playfulness that here's what I'm doing and it's working for me. And I hope you can find an answer for you too, as opposed to someone claiming to have all the answers if you just do exactly as I say. And uh, I was engaged again. And I went looking for a secular daily reflection book, something for atheists or agnostics. And I couldn't find one, not a Hazelden book, not, not in Toronto. We had a place called the world's biggest bookstore, uh, which doesn't exist anymore, a post-pandemic uh, problem. Uh, but like, and I was complaining to my friends about in this day and age, it would have been like 2005 or something. There's, there isn't even a, a book uh, that isn't a, sort of a religious devotional. And they, and after complaining a while, someone you know, called me on my bullshit. I said, okay, Joe, uh, yeah, yeah, I remember you, you, you were complaining about the same thing last week and the week before. So what are you going to do about it? Well, I can't do anything. Well, if someone was going to write that book, Joe, who would that be? Well, I can't because, and I thought for sure I'd have an end of the sentence when I started the sentence. And I, <laughs> I said, well, no, maybe I can, maybe I can't. And I started putting some ideas together. And it, it, like, I'm embarrassed to say it took me seven years to write a book that's just one page a day, right? But, but that's how long it took me to write Beyond Belief, Agnostic Musings for 12-Step Life. And I had no idea whether there'd be a dozen people who wanted a book like this uh, or 1,200 people who wanted a book like this. But but I, I, I like I was already writing uh, music stuff. I was doing music journalism, finance and investment and economic stuff, demographics, billiards. I had a few other areas where I was doing some writing. So so like I had some chops and 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 it just sort of took off. And then this 
this secular community took off too. Since 2014, we have a international conference of secular AA, and it's not AA 2.0. It's just a way of talking about AA in plain practical language that doesn't evoke uh, supernatural power. Some people call themselves spiritual, some people don't. Uh, that's not what it's about. It's about uh, the problem of addiction and the solution in AA of recovery. And so that's what this book is about, too. And it's helped create a community, too, because I started a Rebellion Dogs publishing podcast, which is sort of a journalistic sort of thing. I, I love interviewing other authors of other books. I go to NADAC, the National Association of Addiction and Recovery Counselors, like not because I'm any professional, but I'm a journalist and I'll hear from them what what they think and what the latest research is. So that path has been a great doorway to feed my nerdy side, to feed the from the neck up side. The uh, Like uh, I had found my 12 step recovery was intellectually stunted. And uh, and now I'm getting all this stuff and all these other podcasts, like what you're doing. You are so for real, well over 100. Like a lot of people do 12 podcasts and they're gone, right? Like yeah. like you are uh, applying your your addiction to your 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 recovery. And uh, because I know what it's like to do over 100 uh, shows of, of one type, right? You have to be you have to be certain you're going to do it no matter what you know if a hard drive crashes if a guest cancels you're going to get a show done right uh, and that's that's what it takes to write a book too it's not passion and it's not discipline it's uh compulsion it's uh, you know drive and compulsion are are of the same uh you know dna i think and so uh the, this book was a way of me sort of applying that sort of what I knew from out there on the street with drugs and alcohol, just making it happen no matter what. And the community it's created and the people I've, made, I've met and the opportunities in terms of broadening my sort of view. It's 10 years old, that book. Uh, and, uh, you know, why sell millions when you can sell dozens? It is for a niche audience, but... Uh, a guy who wrote uh, Spirituality of Imperfection and um, not God, A History of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was a history prof and a Jesuit priest. Ernie Kurtz was his name. And uh, he said, uh, I don't like your title, you know, for agnostic musings for 12-step life because I wholeheartedly believe in the God that you do not believe in. And uh, I don't find anything uh you know that offends my senses in this book <laughs> you need a new title but i haven't changed the title and uh but uh the fact that he paid attention at all was great he actually ended up writing the foreword for the book which which was great so so it's not throwing stones at a sort of traditional uh you know god-centric sort of approach to uh 12-step recovery it's just being authentic and candid speaking in my own terms you know in my own way and uh and borrowing from others uh, you know professionals in recovery poets songwriters the stoics 
you know, all kinds of stuff. It's it, it, it was a blast, and and blogging is a blast, and these podcasts are a blast. And we were talking earlier. I don't know if it'll make it into the actual part of the thing, but but like uh, having a, a conference of podcasters, I think we're ready for that. You know, there are so many. I can't keep up with them anymore. Uh, but, you know, I, I never go shopping or driving my car without listening to a podcast to try to get, keep up with it. It's uh, my new drug of choice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm, I was looking the other day and I'm subscribed to over a hundred different podcasts and I just, there's no way I can keep up with all of them, but I, I do my best. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there's always enough, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I can't swim in all of the water in the ocean, but there's always enough of it that anytime I want it, it's there. Right. And it's some people can't go to meetings on a regular schedule. And is a podcast the same as a meeting. No, but it doesn't mean it can't get you through the day. And I, I think other people, introverts, people with social anxiety disorder, that, you know, long before the pandemic, their recovery community was all uh, virtual because the idea of going into a meeting of total strangers and expressing your inner uh, fears and uh, shames, just introverts aren't going to do that, right? You know, they're, they're going to have to find another way and and they, they have. It's really, really cool. So, yeah, big fan. Love what you're doing. Thanks for having me. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show today, man. I'm so glad that we were able to connect and have this wonderful conversation. If you guys are interested in Joe's book or his podcast or the other book that we discussed in the podcast, the links for that will be in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.